Our scripture text today is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8, verses 31 through 38. Hear God's word as we read together. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that, the, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words, in this adulterous, adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when He comes in His Father's glory with the holy angels. And I'm going to add chapter 9, verse 1. And He said to them, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. May the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable to you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. And the people said, Amen. Yogi Berra, the esteemed Yankees catcher and professional baseball Hall of Famer, was well known for his sense of humor, his quick wit, and proverbial sayings known as yogiisms. After he died back in September of 2015, the USA Today published a sports article listing the top 50 Yogi Berra quotes. Here are the top Five, starting with number five. No one goes there nowadays. It's too crowded. Number four. It's like deja vu all over again. Number three. It ain't over till it's over. And number two. You can observe a lot just by watching. And the most popular yogiism, according to their research, when you come to a fork in the road, take it. I'd like to linger with number one for a few moments this morning. Mark chapter 8 is kind of a theological fork in the road. This chapter is the hinge or the fulcrum of Mark's gospel. Not only is it the exact middle of Mark in terms of chapter and verses, it is also theologically the center point at which the ministry of Jesus takes a decisive turn toward the cross. 
Jesus seems to know what he is doing and where he is going. He knows his purpose. Whether he wants to go there or not, as a human, the incarnation, God on earth, well, we know he struggled. For the disciples, however, Mark 8 does represent a kind of fork in the road. And like Yoki Berra, they look at the fork in the road and they want to take it. They want it both ways. They want to stick with Jesus and be his followers while at the same time insisting that Jesus follow down the path that they want to take. We are no different than those first century disciples. There is a point at which we must decide to follow Jesus. We have choices to make. Choices that involve our future, our families, our vocation, our time, our commitments, our new and often an unpopular way of life when we follow Jesus. Choices that call us to self-denial and cross-bearing. A call to follow this road of discipleship that involves losing one's life and ironically finding it and saving it. Following Jesus takes us to a fork in the road. A little background today as we consider this fork in the road with Jesus. Starting back at verse 27 in chapter 8. Jesus and his disciples went on, the vill- on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, Who do people say I am? And they replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others say you're one of the prophets. But what about you? Who do you say I am? Jesus said. Peter steps up. You are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. This is Peter's confession of Christ. Now there had been language that they had used. They had talked about him being the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one earlier on. We see that in some of the other gospel accounts. But this is the first time that one of them officially responded to Jesus and said, you are the Messiah. You are the Christ. You are the anointed one. Jesus took his disciples about 25 miles above the Sea of Galilee to Caesarea Philippi to teach them. In fact, at the very beginning of our passage, he says in verse 31, he began to teach them. His purpose of going to Caesarea Philippi was to teach them. He had been teaching them all along about ministry and caring for people and healing people, exercising demons and so forth. But now he would teach them about the cross. And he took them to a farther away place so that they would not be interrupted by the Pharisees and the Sadducees and other religious leaders who were always after him. Caesarea Philippi was a pagan area. It was known as the birthplace of the Greek god Pan, who was the god of nature. Farther upside the hill of Mount Hermon, the son of uh, Philip, the son of Herod the Great, built a temple and named it after himself and Caesar. 
and uh, the, the, the Caesar, as you know, was regarded as divine. The population was, again, pagan, and Jesus would have perhaps not had some of the interruptions and would have been able to spend time teaching his disciples, giving them spiritual teaching concerning the crucifixion and uh, what would happen to him in just a little over six months. It was here, of all places, that Peter discovered that Jesus was the Messiah. And this is the center of the gospel, the peak moment Jesus knew what he faced. He said, who do people say I am? Trying to see just how much they had perhaps been influenced by their environment, as well as his direct instruction. Would the disciples still believe in Jesus as Messiah after all the defections and the opposition seen by them? Prior to this point, Jesus mostly focused on his authority and power. But at verse 31, again, the emphasis is on his rejection, his death, and his resurrection. And they said, some say you're John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others say you're one of the prophets. But he probed further, who do you say that I am? Peter, you are the Christ, which means you are the Messiah. And the Jewish people longed for a day when a new king would come. A new king in the line of David would come. The Messiah king would make them the great power that they were once. Great in righteousness, great in power. And because they had had a, a history of being conquered by the Assyrians and the Babylonians, and the Persians, and the Greeks, and now the Romans, they long to have that power back again. They long to have that status back again. And they longed for a God who would intervene and do what human beings could not do. But Jesus began to teach them about a Messiah that wouldn't overthrow governments, that wouldn't go to war in the way that they described. Jesus began to teach them about a Messiah who would suffer, about a Messiah who would take up his cross and die. And I imagine that the disciples thought that was incomprehensible. Perhaps this is why Peter so violently protested after he heard Jesus say this. To him, this was impossible. And Jesus realized immediately that the devil was working through Peter. Peter took Jesus physically by the arm and took him off to the side and rebuked him and said, this is not going to happen to you. This, this cannot happen and we will stand up for you. Jesus realized, I believe, that he was being tempted yet again. This was yet another wilderness temptation. Tempting Jesus to take his own way instead of God's way perhaps to take the fork in the road and have it both ways. While Matthew's gospel and Luke spell out a threefold temptation of Jesus, that Jesus was tempted in the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, the three main sins known to human being, Mark just simply says he was tempted. He doesn't give us a whole lot of detail in chapter 1 about what happened to Jesus in the wilderness. We read that in the other gospels. But here we see a temptation unfolding. He is tempted, and so are we. Tempted to think that God's anointed can avoid suffering, can avoid rejection, can avoid death, and that God rule means power without pain, glory without humiliation. This is Peter's thinking, and perhaps others as well. 
and Jesus identifies it as Satan. And he rebukes Peter. He reminds Peter and the other disciples where they belong, behind him. Disciples are not to guide or protect Jesus or to possess Jesus as if they own him. They are to follow him. And look at verse 33. When Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. How might have that looked if you were Peter and Jesus turns away from you to the other disciples and rebukes you? This is a teaching opportunity for all of the other disciples to see. Jesus physically turns, looked at the disciples, and rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. And then what happens next is something that we all have to deal with. We all have to grapple with it. Verse 34. Jesus called the crowd, not only the disciples, but the crowd, verse 34, along and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Take up their cross and follow me. Deny self, take up cross, follow me. Could you imagine what it would have been like for the disciples to hear Jesus, to tell them to take an instrument of capital punishment up and to follow him? Because that's what a cross was. There was no other use of a cross in the Roman Empire at this time than as a cruel punishment by death. And yet Jesus says, deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. The first two, deny self, take up cross, are imperatives in the Greek. These are things the disciples must do. Deny yourself, you must. Take up your cross, you must. But follow me is not a command. Follow me is in the present tense. It's a day-to-day activity, an ongoing activity. Day to day to day to day, they follow Jesus. Deny self, take up cross, and then doing that day to day to day, Jesus says, follow me. You are following me. So what does it mean to deny self? Have you thought about that? It's not something that much in here in Western America, in in, um, our culture, in Western culture, that we like to think about perhaps. But let me suggest that self-denial is not putting uh, aside your own pleasures, as the Living Bible says. Let me suggest that self-denial is not giving up the things we want, as the New Century Version suggests. Those are good things. But I believe self-denial as mere self-restraint can be thought of and acted on apart from Jesus. We can put aside our own likes or give up the things we want without the power of the Holy Spirit. We don't really need Jesus to do those things. So what does it mean to truly deny self? Does it mean that we're not supposed to like ourselves? Does it mean we're supposed to ridicule ourselves or believe things that people might have said that were negative toward us? I don't think that is the case at all. But often the church makes us feel that we're supposed to deny ourselves, deny our past, deny our being who we are. And 
I want to say that denial of self may speak, I believe, to a corporate understanding of our identity. It, it has a social or public dimension with real effects on one's relationships with the other. I believe it has to do with loving God and loving neighbor as ourself. Perhaps it is quite the opposite of what we'd normally think, that to deny self is to embrace community. Consider the story of Abraham and Sarah that we heard earlier. They were part of God's covenant to be the parents of a new nation. They denied a life that was autonomous, secured, enclosed, safe, just the two of them to live life normally for a life that propels them into a relationship with God with a a future by a bounding relationship. They were part of God's covenant and through that covenant would come a nation, and through that nation would come the Messiah, our Jesus. It is saying, it's not about me. I'm not on the throne. It's about God and others. Billy Graham's wife, Ruth, I think thought like this. She was alone often, raising the children while Billy Graham was going about the world, sharing the gospel with people. And she said in an article I read after he passed away just recently, I'd rather have a little of Billy Graham than a lot of any other man. She denied self. She put herself out of the limelight and embraced the ministry that she and Billy were called to and embraced I believe, the greater community of the family of God. To deny yourself and take up a cross invites us to what the cross can also mean, not just death and suffering, but God choosing human relationships. The cross is a symbol of God's desiring to reconcile himself with humanity through the death, the suffering and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The cross represents God's commitment to humanity. One teacher writes, Jesus' charge is not a demand to deny your true self. It's an invitation to imagine that yourself needs the other. Desperately. Intimately. Because that is what it means to be human. Intimacy. Belonging. Relationship. Attention to one another. In summary, she writes, to deny self is to deny the impulses that demand reliance on ourselves alone and to seek the help of others, embracing the truth that we cannot live in this world without yourself being in relationship. Deny self. Embrace community. And then Jesus says, take up your cross. What's that mean? I see the cross not as the burdens that life imposes from without, but rather the painful redemption, redemptive action necessary voluntarily taken for others. That God stepped into this world and suffered with us. I believe that's what it means when Jesus took up his cross. When we take up ours, that we enter into the suffering of our fellow man, our fellow sister, our fellow family member, our fellow church member. 
The cross we wear around our neck as jewelry, the cross that we have hanging on our wall, the crosses that adorn our sanctuaries are reminders of this. Entering into one's suffering, empathy, identifying with and being present for that person. There are a few paintings that I'd like to share with you this morning from my own family. My stepfather was an artist his whole life in South Carolina. He grew up and painted. And there was this first painting hanging up in our house as I was growing up. And it's kind of dark, but it's of a sailing vessel with three masts. And each mast is a cross, symbolizing, as I look at it, the three crosses on the hill at Golgotha. This painting was in, uh, painted in 1956. And then the next year, in 1957, my stepdad painted this one. I was often intrigued by it when I would pass it in our house. But you can see that he definitely intended for it to be Jesus on the cross. Fast forward many years to 2008. He had been diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease just two years prior. And my mother was his primary caregiver and just totally devoted herself to caring for him. But he still kept painting. His Alzheimer's could not keep him from putting that brush to the canvas. Even up into his dying days in 2012, he was still painting. And this painting is of Jesus dying on the cross and the other thieves alongside of him and the women and others at the cross tending to him. In this particular painting hung in my mother's living room, still does, in the very place where my stepdad's hospice bed was. And as we cared for him in those last days, there right above him was this painting, beautiful painting of Jesus on the cross. And I, I, I just, I had a totally new understanding, I can't really explain it, of the cross after being in that place. Perhaps to take up our cross is to build our life around the cross. The French artist, Kate, helped me with the French. You speak it fluently. And the artist is Auguste Rodin. So, so, okay. Lived during the turn of the 20th century. <clears throat> One day he was about his way and he saw a carved crucifix, a huge carved crucifix cross beside the road and immediately he wanted to have it. He purchased the cross and arranged for it to be taken back to his house. But unfortunately it was too big for the building. So instead of giving it up, he knocked out the walls, raised the roof, and rebuilt his home around that cross. I want to suggest that when we hear Jesus' call to radical discipleship, we come to a point that we need to knock down some walls and rebuild our lives around the cross of Jesus Christ. To enter into the lives of others who are around us, those who are in need, we may not be able to fix it, but we can certainly 
be present in their suffering. Jesus said, if any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. To take up one's cross is more than a burden. It's more than a thorn in the flesh. It is a cross to bear. More than a burden. More than a thorn in the flesh. It is a cross to bear. We all have a cross to carry. That is to willingly engage in another's suffering for no other reason than sacramental, sac- sacrificial love. Not surface sentimental love with a greeting card, but deep sacrificial love. It's not a chore, but it is a need, says one of our members. Tom Jarvis, who's been a member here for a long time, and I were talking recently, and he shared with me how he was there for his wife in her last days after being diagnosed with cancer. And I asked him for permission, and he said I could share this. And he said uh, for, about his wife, Wilma, his first wife, Bobby, it wasn't a chore, but it was a need that she had. He said, I couldn't turn it loose. I had to be there. I had cared for my mother some 10 years before, and perhaps God prepared me for such a time as this. And then Tom says, you reach a point when you say it's not about me. It's a conviction of the heart. Not so much an emotional feeling. And then he said this, which I thought was powerful. When you look at others as people whom God loves, it changes the way you live. That's bearing someone's cross. Whether it's grandparents raising their grandchildren because your kids have made some poor choices or something else has happened and you're raising your grandchildren, or parents who suffer alongside their children who have addictions, and they don't know where else to turn, but they know that they just can't give up on that child, or parents who give up everything so they are able to care for a child who has significant disabilities and cannot care for him or herself, or perhaps a deep, heartfelt need to change something in this world, and you commit all of your heart mind and soul to it. Some seeking to stop human trafficking. Others engaged in racial reconciliation. That's your cross. Others in refugee ministry to treat people with dignity to make sure that when they get here to our country that their basic needs are met and that they have opportunity. Others seek to help people who have no home. Others have a passion for equal housing or public transportation in areas where it does not exist so that people can get to decent paying jobs and provide for their family. And still yet others who will not rest until our children feel safe in their schools yet again. These are crosses we bear. You can think of others that are on your hearts today that God has given you as one to carry. Deny self. Take up cross. And then day to day, follow me. Daily we take on the identity of Jesus Christ. Seeking to become more and more like Jesus. Jesus came following in the line of the prophets who preceded him, but this was different. He was not merely a messenger. He was the message himself. He proclaimed, if you want to be If you want to see God, look at my life. But the messenger who was the message could not be squelched. 
His cross was therefore not a place of dying. It became a sign of life which cannot be bound by nails nor squashed by jeers. The cross showed what God had in mind all along. God is insisting that nothing stand in the way of telling his people, I love you no matter what you do to me. It's not emotional, not sentimental feelings, but compassionate, sacrificial love. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me, for the gospel, will save it. If I speak in the tongues of men or angels but do not have love, I am a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I, am, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it does not seek to dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs, love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always perseveres. Love never fails. But we have this treasure in jars of clay that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side but not crushed, perplexed but not in despair, persecuted but not abandoned, struck down but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus Christ so that the life of Jesus may be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life also may be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. So what does it mean as we go from here today? Fred Craddock was one of the most well-known preachers of the 20th century. And he asked this question, what does it mean for me, a happy person with a good life, to deny myself and take up a cross? And this story that he told provides a clue. A wealthy man went into his priest with a check for $50,000 made out to the church and handed it over to the priest. The priest looked at the check and he thought, that's a lot of money. But then he gave the check back to the man and said, I want you to cash this in dollar bills and in quarters and go do the work of the Lord. Do something for the Lord each day. And the man said, well, that will take my entire life. And the priest said, that's it. That's the point. Let us pray.